Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will cover all things energy markets as we will touch on the ongoing geopolitical implications stemming from Eastern Europe to oil prices across the globe and what it all means on a local level at the pump, how the energy sector is responding to current supply needs, how to consider positioning within the sector, and more. Uh, We are fortunate to have on the line with us today Jay Dobson, Energy MLP and Utilities Analyst Americas from the UBS Chief Investment Office. So, Jay, welcome back. Thank you for dropping by and looking forward to hearing your insights. Yeah, thanks. Good day, Dan, and thanks for having me. So, Jay, of course, a lot to cover within the energy group, and I know markets, even consumers, have been closely tracking how global crude oil prices, uh, they have, of course, been pushed higher over the past several weeks. Uh, This as a result of the ongoing tragic events that have unfolded in Eastern Europe. I'm, of course, referring to Russia's invasion into Ukraine. So, Jay, what is driving the rising prices, and what are some of the impacts you're picking up on? Yeah, thanks for the question, Dan. And I just I feel obligated to start with the idea that you know our thoughts go out to all the people that are afflicted by this uh, this conflict. Um, it's it's just as a human being a, a tragic tragic event. But to your question, I think we have to rewind, you know, sort of prior to the military conflict, and sort of understand that the you know global crude oil uh, supply demand balance was pretty tight to begin with, even before these activities. What we were observing was demand was continuing to improve from the impacts of the the pandemic and global supplies though they were rising as well you know they were uh, they were rising somewhat slowly and we saw developing sort of an under moderately undersupplied market you can see this by global crude oil inventories which were continuing to be drawn down um, so with that as a sort of backdrop when all of a sudden we look into military activity and, and a war in in Ukraine, um, you know, we see now a yet even tighter market. Um, Some of what we're observing is commercial buyers of Russian crude are shying away from those purchases. You know, most of those are on the spot market, so it doesn't reflect all of the exports that that Russia makes. But, you know, Russia is a large um, producer of of crude oil, uh, the third largest in, in the world and actually the second largest exporter. So, you know, it matters how buyers reflect, re- react to, to this activity. I think we've also seen uh, energy companies, you know, seeking to exit their investments in, in Russian oil and gas. This will take more time, but, you know, I would argue we can't lose sight of the fact that this is likely negative long term uh, for for supply and, and the implications for uh, for global supply in crude. So I'd say what we're observing is a tight market got tighter uh, from a supply-demand perspective, and we already have pretty low inventories. So that's really why we're seeing oil prices higher. But I think the other thing to keep in mind for our listeners, Dan, is, you know, when we look at supply-demand balance in really any commodity, you know, prices rise to either encourage a supply response, so bring more supply, or to destroy demand, because ultimately you get, you know, equilibrium at, you know, supply equaling demand. And if supply can't be met into that market, prices rise high enough to reduce demand. And I expect the rising prices um, probably are, are having an impact on both supply and demand to bring us back into balance. The last thing I'll mention is, you know, there's a risk premium in crude, and that had evaporated 
evaporated uh, over the last several years, but uh, I'd say there's a risk premium and there probably will be a risk premium in the price of crude going forward just for some of these geopolitical events, which even if, um, you know, we resolve or this uh, war in Ukraine is resolved, uh, that risk premium is likely to prove somewhat durable. So um, that, that's sort of how we're thinking about uh, what we're observing on, on uh, you know, the supply and demand market in, in crude oil. But uh, it's definitely driving prices higher, as you mentioned. Jay, very helpful backdrop to set the stage, maybe branching off as far as gas prices. And this question might yield an obvious answer. But as we're seeing the run up in global crude prices, what are the implications there on a local level to uh, gas prices at the pump? Yeah, I mean, the easy answer is is higher. You know, gasoline prices follow crude prices. We've seen crude prices move up very rapidly. When we look at the national average of gasoline prices here in the U.S., they've moved up very rapidly. You know, what we all should be watching is, you know, how fast uh, military activity can cease in, in Ukraine and then how much or how quickly we can get, you know, the global supply and demand rebalanced um, <clears throat> because that would bring prices down. But uh, I probably worry the risk is to the upside for crude oil and gasoline in the in the near term. And contributing to that, Jay, I recall on Tuesday of this week, the U.S. and the president was very transparent about this, how it will impact prices. He did announce, President Biden, an embargo of Russian oil imports products into the country. Uh, similar actions were announced by Canada, the United Kingdom recently. How have global energy markets, Jay, thus far responded and how might any voids of this disruption be filled? Yeah, I mean, the, the the first thing I'd say, Dan, is, as I mentioned earlier, you know, this, a tight supply-demand environment just got even tighter. Now, I think it's, you know, important to look. The U.S. doesn't purchase a lot of Russian crude. In fact, we purchase more refined products, gasoline, diesel, et cetera, than we buy crude. But even that is is relatively small. So I think from a U.S. perspective, you know, it's, it's manageable. I think what we're continuing to think about is, you know, who else? might follow this. And again, it has a lot to do with uh, with the war in Ukraine. But the longer that drags on, you know, the increasing likelihood that others may follow uh, these actions and, and try and limit their consumption of, of global cru- uh, of Russian crude oil. And again, that then makes that market tighter and tighter. Um, you know, to manage that, you know, certainly, um, you know, OPEC is continuing to, to raise supply. Um, we've got a couple other outlets. But as I said, Said, you know, prices go up to either encourage a supply response or to reduce demand. And, you know, my guess is we'll have to be watching both of those um, in this environment because, as I said, you know, the, the, the supply demand balance is, is really, really tight right here. So, Jay, with that in mind, I have to wonder what kind of role might OPEC play with respect to production contributions and might Russia's seat at the OPEC plus table, might that be in jeopardy in light of what is transpiring in Eastern Europe? OPEC Plus has been raising production monthly pursuant to an agreement that they forged in in July of of 2021. They've been raising supply, uh, at least stated supply, by about 400,000 barrels a day monthly. Um, And uh, I expect that that's going to continue. Um, They stated that they would do that through uh, year-end 2022. They included a couple months in there that they might skip that increase. They haven't, so I think mathematically it works out to a a monthly increase through September of 2022. Um, But I think it's important to keep in mind that decisions at OPEC 
OPEC plus have to be unanimous. Um, and as some members have been struggling to meet their production quotas, our base case is that OPEC does continue to raise the supply, but raises it in line with, you know, that 400,000 barrel a day, you know, sort of monthly uh, uh, agreement that they forged back in, in July of, of 2021. The next meeting's coming up here on March 31st, so that'll be sort of the next indication we get. But um, our base case is, is they stick to that uh, agreement. On, on, you know, Russia and their seat at the table, um, I think uh, OPEC Plus has benefited from the alignment between OPEC and, and Russia. Uh, OPEC states itself as an apolitical organization, um, very, very uh, focused on keeping, you know, global energy markets uh, balanced. Uh, so I think they're going to try their best to try to avoid, um, you know, sort of uh, taking away Russia's seat. But uh, again, like all of these geopolitical things, uh, I think the longer this drags on, um, the, the higher the risk of that goes. But I'd say our base case right now is, is that's not particularly likely where we sit. So again, you'll see as an outlet of that um, OPEC plus continuing to raise supply uh, through uh, monthly through September of, of 2022. Now, from a domestic standpoint, Jay, how do you expect that U.S. oil and natural gas producers to respond to increasing oil prices and the potential need for more supply? That's a really important question, Dan, because obviously, you know, there's lots of media coverage of this. I think it's important to state U.S. producers are expected to increase supply in 2022 by about 5%. I'm looking at crude oil there. Um, natural gas would be slightly different, but um, you know, crude oil is probably what really drives production of oil and, and natural gas. I'd point out some of the private companies are growing a little faster than that. Some of the public companies growing a little slower than that. But in total, I think it'll be 5% or, or a little higher. Um, you know, as, as we mentioned, uh, OPEC Plus is increasing supply. There's a potential for a deal between world powers and Iran to, to reestablish what we call the JCPOA nuclear agreement, or it's really the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action uh, nuclear agreement. Um, so I think when you think about what are U.S. producers doing, they're really trying to balance, you know, how is the supply demand balance not only now, but, you know, really in the intermediate term, since any action they take today, start drilling a well today, you're not getting first oil out of it for three to six months. Um, so, you know, what we're seeing U.S. producers doing is, you know, maintaining what they've called capital discipline. Capital discipline in two, 2022 has been defined by about a 20% increase in capital spending, driving about a 5% increase in production. Um, so I, I think when you mix it all together, we're seeing U U.S. producers, you know, react. They're being very careful and disciplined um, to look at, you know, both the intermediate and longer term uh, issues, which would include, you know, current prices, you know, the outlook, as I mentioned, for global supply and demand. And importantly, though, you know, we don't want to really talk about it when we're, we're sort of responding to, you know, sort of geopolitical events. You know, these producers in the U.S. still have to look out that really long term and say, hey, how do I make sure I'm aligning myself? 
itself around the long-term energy transition towards, you know, sort of a lower carbon intensity energy supply. So uh, I think when you mix it all together, um, you know, the U.S. producers are responding. They're increasing supply. You know, I think there's some people out there that would like them to move faster. But, um, you know, I, I think the U.S. producers are, are you know, doing sort of all that they can um, to make sure that they balance the near and longer term elements of, of their strategies. So, Jay, being mindful of all of these considerations you've shared with us, how does this all translate to the current oil price forecast of the chief investment office? Yeah, it's a great question because pulling it all together, Dan, you know, at the, at the end of the day, we have forecasts for Brent, which is a global uh, benchmark for, for crude oil, as well as for, you know, West Texas Intermediate or, or WTI. Our WTI forecast currently is for $122 crude at the end of June and at year end uh, at $102. Um, I, I feel pretty good about the, the year end, though, obviously, uh, in, in the current environment, uh, anything that's, you know, nine-ish months away feels like an eternity. Um, but I, I would say uh, uh, probably our bias to, to the you know, near-term June-ish time frame is, is to the upside. Again, that has a lot to do with a very, very tight supply-demand balance um, and as well, you know, what's going to happen in, in Ukraine, uh, as well as how buyers and countries are going to continue to respond to that. So I, I'd say there's a lot of of variables in there. Um, we're trying to do our best to uh, to take a look at those, but I'd say $122, uh, $122 uh, per barrel for June, but the risk to the is to the upside for that in, uh, in the near term. Now, Jay, as we begin to close out, I do want to remind our listeners, our clients, the Chief Investment Office does maintain a most preferred view on the U.S. energy sector. So in terms of positioning portfolios, Jay, uh, what's the thinking there in light of the current environment, which you've outlined for us during our conversation here this morning, and how are you recommending that investor's position within the group? Yeah, Dan, we've maintained that uh, overweight on the energy sector for uh, a little over a year now, and uh, it's it's worked out fantastically. Um, you know, certainly we wouldn't have expected or didn't anticipate, um, you know, a war and some of these geopolitical events driving crude. You know, our underlying belief was uh, the market for crude was very tight and was going to get tighter. Um, so that has definitely played out. You know, we've also seen energy, you know, sort of act as a hedge to, you know, both geopolitical risks broadly, but, you know, more specifically, you know, rising inflation that we've certainly seen even as uh, late as this morning um, in some of the, the CPI data, you know, we, we've seen it, uh, energy act as a good hedge there. What I would say is, you know, the overweight on energy has worked really well. We remain overweight, but, you know, certainly, you know, we're paying close attention. I said earlier, I think our, our oil price uh, forecast could drift higher from here. That probably gives a little bit more buoy to uh, to energy stocks, but uh, I would say we should be getting prepared to take some profits or to take some chips off the table. We haven't done that yet, but uh, is certainly uh, we're looking at uh, given how strong this reaction's been, um, it, it makes it makes sense. You know, the one other thing I'd point out is you know what we have been watching certainly since the Ukraine war started is you know energy stocks go up on days that the market over. Overall, is is going down, so it it certainly does inform potentially that uh, as we see, uh, hopefully, and I say that as both an energy analyst and as a human being, hopefully uh, these military activities will cease very soon. 
um, you know, we might see some of that some of that reverse. You know, we've been most excited when we look at uh, the last year about sort of the U.S. onshore producers, the E&P companies, um, as well as some of the large integrated companies. But I'd, I'd point out, you know, a moderation in in uh, the price of crude would would be more positive for refiners who buy oil to to refine it into things like gasoline and diesel. And I do think there's long term opportunities that exist for some of the oil field services companies. You know, the last thing I'd, I'd say, Dan, and, and this is, you know, a part of the, the overweight on energy, but as well uh, a part of our global green tech theme. I mean, look, the energy transition long term that I, I referenced earlier has to be considered in all this. And I continue to believe we need an all of the above strategy. Yes, we need renewables, but we are going to need uh, fossil fuels for a durable amount of time. Um, and uh, I would argue a lot of the integrated oil companies and the oil field services companies have just an enormous opportunity to participate in this energy transition. So um, we're, we're excited about an all of the above strategy that, that allows energy, traditional energy companies to play a big role in that energy transition. So maintain the overweight to energy, but definitely a bit of a work in progress of how we're going to position around that uh, as we look forward to hopefully uh, some of this geopolitical risk uh, declining. Well, uh, Jay, as you know, the run-up in energy prices has gripped the attention of investors, consumers, and has move the broader market. So the clarity you've offered our listeners, our clients this morning in helping us to manage expectations at the pump going forward, uh, the guidance on positioning within the energy space, all very helpful. So thank you very much, Jay, for dropping by this morning and looking forward to following up on these topics, picking back up with our conversation soon. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate the time. Today, we've been joined by Jay Dobson, Energy, MLP, and Utilities Analyst Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. As a reminder to our clients and their listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Of course, for clients of UBS, you can reach out to your financial advisor directly to receive any copies of the publications to blogs directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.